Hello and welcome to season two of Tea and Old Books. This is now day 20 of the lockdown in Spain and the canny among you may have noticed that there has been a slight delay between series one and series two of this podcast. Not much of one, a mere one day. This is because I spent a day deciding on the next book and also I thought that starting on day 20 was nice and symmetrical, I, li- I liked it. It'll make it easy for us to work out what day we're on without me having to say it all the time. So, in series one, we read The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, which was a ripping murder mystery published in 1908. This season's book is a little bit older. I wanted something gothic, and at first I thought I was going to go full early gothic and have something from the 18th century. But my first choice turned out to be huge. It was about four times the length of the circular staircase, so I've chosen something from the 19th century instead. This doesn't mean that we won't go back to the full Gothic later on. I mean, who knows how long this lockdown is going to last, and maybe we'll want a really huge book to see us through to the end. Now, in this season, which is season two, of TNL Books, we will be reading, ready for this, dramatic pause, we will be reading The Dead Secret by Wilkie Collins. Oh, I'm so excited. So I love Wilkie Collins. He is one of my absolute favorite writers. And I wasn't going to do one of his books because I thought I'd read them all. And I don't want to reread something for this podcast. I want us to discover the story together. But turns out I haven't read them all after all. This is just something, some idea I had in my mind for my English literature background. I thought I'd read them all. Turns out, happy news, I have not. The Dead Secret will be as new to me as it is for you, if it is in fact new for you. As this is the first episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about Wilkie Collins a little bit about this book, then we're going to have some predictions or things to look out for. Now, I don't know what this book is about. I've deliberately not read the summary or any plot points. All I know is the title, like the year it was published, and that Wilkie Collins wrote it. That is good enough recommendation for me. So, Wilkie Collins, or to give him his full name, William Wilkie Collins. So I've just been looking this up on Wikipedia. I will do more research as we go along and add in extra fun facts and probably some quotes because he is a very quotable man. So William Wilkie Collins was born the 8th of January 1824 and he died the 23rd of September 1889. He was an English novelist and playwright and short story writer. Now you may have heard of him before and read some of his more famous books. So famously, The Moonstone has often been called the first English detective story. That was written in 1868. And The Woman in White, which is one of my favorite books. And if I hadn't read it, 
about 10 times than I would do it for this podcast, but I have read it, I know it very well. So The Woman in White was published in 1859. That one is fantastic. I recommend reading it over The Moonstone, which is fine, but is you know, a not as good version of The Woman in White, frankly. Um, <clears throat> so originally he's from London. Um, his family, his father, sorry, his father was a painter. Um, but he also grew up in Italy and France, so he could speak French and Italian. And he was great friends with Charles Dickens, famously, and Dickens published a lot of Wilkie Collins' work in his journals, all the year round, and household words. And they also collaborated together on drama and plays and all sorts of fun stuff that's definitely worth looking at. Um, so um, that's all I'm going to say about Wilkie Collins for now. Oh, except for one more fun fact. Very famously, he was very anti-marriage and he had two life partners. So he split his time between Caroline Graves and Martha Rudd. And he had several children with Martha Rudd. So he's a good guy. Now, <clears throat> The Dead Secret was his fourth published novel. And it was first published serially in Charles Dickens' Household Words in 1856 and then later on by an actual um, book publishing company. So this is very common. Well, we've done two series, we've done two books, and both of them were published in serial form, which is quite a popular form for both Gothic fiction like this and also for detective fiction so and you know, murder mysteries and the like. Now, I'm not quite sure if the dead secret really counts as gothic fiction. So we'll be doing a little bit of investigative work as we go along and we can decide for ourselves if it does. So I've taken a quote from Wikipedia, which is my source for all things, um, as the beginning point of what gothic fiction is. So this is a quote from Wikipedia. Um, we will back this up more. Should I manage to break my way into any actual academic journals, which as we know, are very locked down even more locked down than us in Spain right now. Now, this is a quote, it's a direct quote. Gothic fiction is a genre of literature that combines elements of both horror and romance. As a genre, it is generally believed to have been invented by the English author Horace Walpole in his 1764 novel, The Castle of Otranto. The effect of Gothic fiction depends on a pleasing sort of terror, an extension of essentially romantic literary pleasures that were relatively new at the time of Walpole's novel. Prominent features of Gothic fiction include terror, both psychological and physical, mystery, the supernatural, ghosts, haunted houses and Gothic architecture, castles, darkness, death, decay, doubles, madness, secrets and hereditary curses and that is from the gothic fiction article on wikipedia oh just i mean how everything about that sounds amazing like who does not want to read gothic fiction so will the dead secret be a gothic novel i think it will qualify but remains to be seen so i think so in this story we're going to be looking for certain key events or like key plot points and my predictions for what they might be and maybe I'll 
think up some kind of scoring system for this so we can work out exactly how many points this novel gets. So, from my readings of previous readings of Gothic fiction, this is what I think we'll be looking out for in this novel. Okay, so things to look out for. This is my list. We're looking for nature, signifying things like society or people's true characters. We're looking for lots of description of nature. Um, castles, hidden doors, women going mad, moors, brutish men, women locked up in places, counts, and I mean that like the, you know, the European version of a duke, fortunes, both lost and found, ruined reputations, particularly pregnancies outside of marriage, you know, maids or other people being seduced by, you know, the, um, the son of the Lord, or the Lord himself, something like that. Um, ghosts, classic, illegitimate children, and our favourite, the East Wing. I think there's going to be an East Wing action happening here. I can already sense it from the pages. So those are the things we're looking out for. If anyone has any suggestions for other things, feel free to tweet them at me, and I will maybe think up some more as we go along. So before we start reading the book, as I turn on my Kindle, we shall discuss the tea that I'm drinking today. Now, I had to go and make myself two cups of tea while doing this introduction because while I had the very first cup and I had just started recording this, um, there was a power cut. All the power went off and the app I'm using to record this podcast crashed because it needs the internet to function and so I lost all of my recording. It's very sad. I lost all of my recording and also my tea both went cold and got drunk by me while I watched some engineers fixing the electricity outside. So there was you know, a bit of a delay. So I've gone through this recording several times already, but you know, we're all together. So did I mention the tea? No, I have not mentioned the tea. Oh my goodness. So the tea is a lemon and ginger tea to try and soothe my throat. I've not added honey because I forgot to, but I'm gonna have a drink. And let's read this book. So, Wilkie Collins. Now, there's some interesting information at the beginning of this copy that I have. So I got this book from Project Gutenberg, like I got the previous book, and it has some extra information in the beginning. So this says that it is a illustrated copy, but I remember when I chose it, I did not choose the illustrated version. So sadly, I do not have the pictures. Um, maybe I will try and look them up later. So this was published by Harper and Brothers Publishers, Franklin Square, 1874. And, ooh, it's, apparently it was $1.50 per volume. So from that, I suspect that this is the American edition, not the original British edition. It's got a list of his other books, oh, all of which are amazing. Um, yeah, it was published in New York. And entered according to Act of Congress in the year 1873 by Harper and Brothers. Hmm, interesting. Okay. The Dead... Oh, before I start, I'm probably going to read two chapters again. We'll see how long each chapter is, but I think probably two. So, The Dead Secret. Book One. Chapter One. The 23rd of August, 1829. Will she last out the night, I wonder? Look at the clock, Matthew. Ten minutes past twelve. 
She has lasted the night out. She has lived, Robert, to see ten minutes of the new day. These words were spoken in the kitchen of a large country house situated on the west coast of Cornwall. The speakers were two of the men servants composing the establishment of Captain Treverton, an officer in the navy and the eldest male representative of an old Cornish family. Both the servants communicated with each other restrainedly, in whispers, sitting close together and looking round expectantly toward the door whenever the talk flagged between them. It's an awful thing, said the elder of the men, for us two to be alone here at this dark time, counting out the minutes that our mistress has left to live. Robert, said the other, you have been in the service here since you were a boy. Did you ever hear that our mistress was a play actress when our master married her? How came you to know that? inquired the elder servant sharply. Hush, cried the other, rising quickly from his chair. A bell rang in the passage outside. Is that for one of us? asked Matthew. Can't you tell by the sound which is those bells yet? exclaimed Robert contemptuously. That bell is for Sarah Leeson. Go out into the passage and look. The younger servant took a candle and obeyed. When he opened the kitchen door, a long row of bells met his eye on the wall opposite. Above each of them was painted in neat black letters the distinguishing title of the servant whom it was specially intended to summon. The row of letters began with housekeeper and butler and ended with kitchen maid and footman's boy. Looking along the bells, Matthew easily discovered that one of them was still in motion. Above it were the words, ladies maid. Observing this, he passed quickly along the passage and knocked at an old-fashioned oak door at the end of it. No answer being given, he opened the door and looked into the room. It was dark and empty. Sarah is not in the housekeeper's room, said Matthew, returning to his fellow servant in the kitchen. She has gone to her own room then, rejoined the other. Go up and tell her that she is wanted by the mistress. The bell rang again as Matthew went out. Quick, quick, cried Robert. Tell her she is wanted directly. Wanted, he continued to himself in lower tones, perhaps the last time. Matthew ascended three flights of stairs, passed halfway down a long arched gallery, and knocked at another old-fashioned oak door. This time the signal was answered. A low, clear, sweet voice inside the room inquired who was waiting without. In a few hasty words Matthew told his errand. Before he had done speaking the door was quietly and quickly opened and Sarah Leeson confronted him on the threshold with her candle in her hand. Not tall, not handsome, not in her first youth, shy and irresolute in manner, simple in dress to the utmost limits of plainness, the lady's maid, in spite of all these disadvantages, was a woman whom it was impossible to look at without a feeling of curiosity, if not of interest. Few men, at first sight of her, could have resisted the desire to find out who she was. Few would have been satisfied with receiving for answer, she is Mrs. Treverton's maid. Few would have refrained from the attempt to extract some secret information for themselves from her face and manner, and none, not even the most patient and practised of observers, could have succeeded in discovering more than that she must have passed through the ordeal of some great suffering at her at some former period of her life. 
much in her manner and more in her face, said plainly and sadly, I am the wreck of something that you might once have liked to see. A wreck that can never be repaired, that must drift on through life unnoticed, unguided, unpitied, drift till the fatal shore is touched and the waves of time have swallowed up these broken relics of me forever. This was the story that was told in Sarah Leeson's face. This and no more. No two men interpreting that story for themselves would probably have agreed on the nature of the suffering which this woman had undergone. It was hard to say, at the outset, whether the past pain that had set her ineffable mark on her had been pain of the body or pain of the mind. <coughs> but, <coughs> sorry, I'm just going to have to take a drink. But whatever the nature of the affliction she had suffered, the traces it had left were deep and strikingly visible in every part of her face. Her cheeks had lost their roundness and their natural colour. Her lips, singularly flexible in movement and delicate in form, had faded to an unhealthy paleness. Her eyes, large and black and overshadowed by unusually thick lashes, had contracted an anxious, startled look which never left them and which piteously expressed the painful acuteness of her sensibility, the inherent timidity of her disposition. So far, the marks which so sorrow or sickness had set on her were the marks common to most victims of mental or physical suffering. The one extraordinary personal deterioration which she had undergone consisted in the unnatural change that had passed over the colour of her hair. It was as thick and soft it grew as gracefully as the hair of a young girl, but it was as grey as the hair of an old woman. It seemed to contradict in the most startling manner every personal assertion of youth that still existed in her face. With all its haggardness and paleness, no one could have looked at it and supposed for a moment that it was the face of an elderly woman. Wan as they might be, there was not a wrinkle in her cheeks. Her eyes, viewed apart from their prevailing expression of uneasiness and timidity, still preserved that bright, clear moisture which is never seen in the eyes of the old. The skin above her temples was as delicately smooth as the skin of a child. These, and other physical signs which never mislead, showed that she was still, as to years, in the very prime of her life. Sickly and sorrow-stricken as she was, she looked from the eyes downward, a woman who had barely reached thirty. From the eyes upward, the effect of her abundant grey hair, seen in connection with her face, was not simply incongruous. It was absolutely startling. So startling as to make it no paradox to say that she would have looked most natural, most like herself, if her hair had been dyed. In her case, art would, seemed, would have seemed to be the truth because nature looked like a falsehood. What shock had stricken her hair in the very maturity of its luxuriance with the hue of an unnatural old age? Was it serious illness or a dreadful grief that had turned her grey in the prime of her womanhood? That question had often been agitated among her fellow servants, who were all struck by the peculiarities of her personal appearance
and rendered a little suspicious of her as well by an inveterate habit that she had of talking to herself. Inquire as they might, however, their curiosity was always baffled. Nothing more could be discovered than that Sarah Leeson was, in the common phrase, touchy on the subject of her grey hair and her habit of talking to herself, and that Sarah Leeson's mistress had long since forbidden everyone from her husband downward to ruffle her maid's tranquillity by inquisitive questions. She stood for an instant speechless on that momentous morning of the 23rd of August before the servant who summoned her to her mistress's deathbed. The light of the candle flaring brightly over her large, startled black eyes and the luxuriant, unnatural grey hair above them, she stood a moment silent, her hand trembling while she held the candlestick, so that the extinguisher lying loose in it rattled incessantly. Been thanked the servant for calling her. The trouble and fear in her voice as she spoke seemed to add to its sweetness. The agitation of her manner took nothing away from its habitual gentleness, its delicate, winning, feminine restraint. Matthew, who, like the other servants, secretly distrusted and disliked her for differing from the ordinary pattern of professed ladies', ladies maids, was, on this particular occasion, so subdued by her manner and her tone as she thanked him, that he offered to carry her candle for her to the door of her mistress's bedchamber. She shook her head and thanked him again, then passed before him quickly on her way out of the gallery. The room in which Mrs. Traverson lay dying was on the floor beneath. Sarah hesitated twice before she knocked at the door. It was opened by Captain Traverton. The instant she saw her master, she started back from him. If she had if she had dreaded a blow, she could hardly have drawn away more suddenly or with an expression of greater alarm. There was nothing in Captain Traverton's face to warrant the suspicion of ill-treatment or even of harsh words. His countenance was kind, hearty and open, and the tears were still trickling down it which he had shed by his wife's bedside. Go in, he said, turning away his face. She does not wish the nurse to attend, she only wishes for you. Call me if the doctor... His voice faltered, and he hurried away without attempting to finish the sentence. Sarah Leeson, instead of entering her mistress's room, stood looking after her master attentively, with her pale cheeks turned to a deathly whiteness, with an eager, doubting, questioning terror in her eyes. When he had disappeared round the corner of the gallery, she listened for a moment outside the door of the sick room, whispered affrightedly to herself, can she have told him? Then opened the door with a visible effort to recover her self-control. And, after lingering suspiciously on the threshold for a moment, went in. Mrs. Traverton's bedchamber was a large, lofty room, situated in the western front of the house, and consequently overlooking the sea view. The night light burning by the bedside displayed rather than dispelled the darkness in the corners of the room. The bed was of the old-fashioned pattern, with heavy hangings and thick curtains drawn all round it. Of the other objects in the chamber, only those of the largest and most solid kind were prominent enough to be tolerably visible in the dim light. The cabinets, the wardrobe, the full-length looking-glass, the high-backed armchair, these, with the great shapeless bulk of the bed itself, towered up heavily and gloomily into view. 
Other objects were all merged together in the general obscurity. Through the open window, opened to admit the fresh air of the new morning after the sultriness of the August night, there poured monotonously into the room the dull, distant roaring of the surf on the sandy coast. All other noises were hushed in that first dark hour of the new day. Inside the room, the one audible sound was the slow, toilsome breathing of the dying woman, raising itself in its mortal frailness, awfully and distinctly, even through the far thunder breathing from the bosom of the everlasting sea. Mistress, said Sarah Leeson, standing close to the curtains, but not withdrawing them, my master has left the room, and he has sent me in here in his place. Light, give me more light. The feebleness of mortal sickness was in the voice, but the accent of the speaker sounded resolute even yet, doubly resolute by contrast with the hesitation of the tones in which Sarah had spoken. The strong nature of the mistress and the weak nature of the maid came out, even in that short interchange of words spoken through the curtain of a deathbed. Sarah lit two candles with a wavering hand, placed them hesitatingly on a table by the bedside, waited for a moment, looking all round her with suspicious timidity, then undrew the curtains. The disease of which Mrs. Traverson was dying was one of the most terrible of all the maladies that afflict humanity, one to which women are especially subject, and one which undermines life without, in most cases, showing any remarkable traces of its corroding progress in the face. No uninstructed person looking at Mrs. Traverton when her attendant undrew the bed curtain could possibly have imagined that she was past all help that mortal skill could offer to her. The slight marks of illness in her face, the inevitable changes in the grace and roundness of its outline, were rendered hardly noticeable by the marvellous preservation of her complexion in all the light and delicacy of its first girlish beauty. There lay her face on the pillow, tenderly framed in by the rich lace of her cap, softly crowned by her shining brown hair. To all outward appearance, the face of a beautiful woman, recovering from a slight illness, or reposing after unusual fatigue. Even Sarah Leeson, who had watched her through all through her malady, could hardly believe, as she looked at her mistress, that the gates of life had closed behind her, and that the beckoning hand of death was signing to her already from the gates of the grave. Some dog's-eared books in paper covers lay on the counterpane of the bed. As soon as the curtain was drawn aside, Mrs. Traverson ordered her attendant, by a gesture, to remove them. They were plays, underscored in certain places by ink lines, and marked with marginal annotations referring to entrances, exits, and places on the stage. The servants, talking downstairs of their mistress's occupation before her marriage, had not been misled by false reports. Their master, after he had passed the prime of life, had, in very truth, taken his wife from the obscure stage of a country theatre, when little more than two years had elapsed since her first appearance in public. The dog's eared old plays had been once her treasured dramatic library. She had always retained a fondness for them from old associations, and during the latter part of her illness, they had remained on her bed for days and days together. Having put away the plays, Sarah went back to her mistress, and with more of dread and bewilderment in her face than grief, 
opened her lips to speak. Mrs. Traversen held up her hand as a sign that she had another order to give. Bolt the door, she said, in the same enfeebled voice, but with the same accent of resolution which had so strikingly marked her first request to have more light in the room. Bolt the door, let no one in till I give you leave. No one, repeated Sarah faintly. Not the doctor, not even my master. Not the doctor, not even your master, said Mrs. Traverton, and pointed to the door. The hand was weak, but even in that momentary action of it, there was no mistaking the gesture of command. Sarah bolted the door, returned irresolutely to the bedside, fixed her large, eager, startled eyes inquiringly on her, master's, on her mistress's face, and suddenly bending over her, said in a whisper, Have you told my master? No, was the answer. I sent for him, to tell him. I tried hard to speak the words. It shook me to my very soul, only to think how I should best break it to him. I am so fond of him. I love him so dearly. But I should have spoken in spite of that. If he had not talked to the child, Sarah, he did nothing but talk of the child, and that silenced me. Sarah, with a forgetfulness of her station, which might have appeared extraordinary, even in the eyes of the most lenient of mistresses, flung herself back in a chair when the first word of Mrs. Traverton's reply was uttered, clasped her trembling hands over her face, and groaned to herself, Oh, what will happen? What will happen now? Mrs. Traverton's eyes had softened and moistened when she spoke of her love for her husband. She lay silent for a few minutes, the working of some strong emotion in her being expressed by her quick, hard, laboured breathing and by the painful contraction of her eyebrows. Ere long, she turned her head uneasily toward the chair in which her attendant was sitting, and spoke again, this time in a voice which had sunk to a whisper. Look for my medicine, said she. I want it. Sarah started up, and with the quick instinct of obedience, brushed away the tears that were rolling fast over her cheeks. The doctor, she said, let me call the doctor. No, the medicine, look for the medicine. Which bottle? The opiate? No, not the opiate, the other. Sarah took a bottle from the table, and looking attentively at the written direction on the label, said that it was not yet time to take that medicine again. Give me the bottle. Oh, pray don't ask me. Pray wait. The doctor said it was as bad as dram drinking if you took too much. Mrs. Traverton's clear grey eyes began to flash. The rosy flush deepened on her cheeks. The commanding hand was raised again by an effort from the counterpane on which it lay. Take the cork out of the bottle, she said, and give it to me. I want strength. No matter whether I die in an hour's time or a week's, give me the bottle. No, no, not the bottle, Sarah, said Sarah, giving it up nevertheless under the influence of her mistress's look. There are two doses left. Wait, pray wait till I get a glass. She turned again toward the table. At the same instant, Mrs. Traverton raised the bottle to her lips, drained it of its contents, and flung it from her bed. She has killed herself, cried Sarah, running in terror to the door. Stop, said the voice from the bed, more resolute than ever already. Stop. Come back and prop me up higher on the pillows. Sarah put her hand on the bolt. Come back, reiterated Mrs. Traverton. While there is life in me, I will be obeyed. Come back. The colour began to deepen perceptibly all over her face, and the light to grow brighter in her wildly opened eyes. 
Sarah came back and with shaking hands added one more to the many pillows which supported the dying woman's head and shoulders. While this was being done, the bedclothes became a little discomposed. Mrs. Traverson shuddered and drew them up to their former position, close around her neck. Did you unbolt the door? she asked. No, I forbid you to go near it again. Get my writing case and the pen and the ink from the cabinet near the window. Sarah went to the cabinet and opened it, then stopped, as if some sudden suspicion had crossed her mind, and asked what the writing materials were wanted for. Bring them and you will see. The writing case, with a sheet of notepaper on it, was placed upon Mrs. Traverson's knees. The pen was dipped into the ink and given to her. She paused, closed her eyes for a minute, and sighed heavily, then began to write, saying to her waiting maid as the pen touched the paper, Look. Sarah peered anxiously over her shoulder, and saw the pen slowly and feebly form these three words, To my husband. Oh, no, 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 for God's sake, don't write it, she cried, catching at her mistress's hand, but suddenly letting it go again the moment Mrs. Traverton looked at her. The pen went on, and more slowly, more feebly, formed words enough to fill a line, then stopped. The letters of the last syllable were all blotted together. Don't, reiterated Sarah, dropping on her knees at the bedside. Don't write it to him if you can't tell it to him. Let me go on bearing what I have borne so long already. Let the secret, and the secret is capitalised, let the secret die with you and die with me and be never known in this world. Never, never, never. The secret must be told, answered Mrs. Traverton. My husband ought to know it and must know it. I tried to tell him and my courage failed me. I cannot trust you to tell him. After I am gone, it must be written. Take you the pen. My sight is failing, my touch is dull. Take the pen and write what I tell you. Sarah, instead of obeying, hid her face in the bed cover and wept bitterly. You have been with me ever since my marriage, Mrs. Traverson went on. You have been my friend more than my servant. Do you refuse my last request? You do, fool, look up and listen to me. On your peril, refuse to take the pen. Write or I shall not rest in my grave. Write or as true as there is a heaven above us, I will come to you from the other world. Sarah started to her feet with a faint scream. You make my flesh creep, she whispered, fixing her eyes on her mistress's face with a stare of superstitious horror. At the same instant, the overdose of the stimulating medicine began to affect Mrs. Traverton's brain. She rolled her head restlessly from side to side of the pillow, repeated vacantly a few lines from one of the old playbooks which had been removed from her bed, and suddenly held out the pen to the servant with a theatrical wave of the hand and a glance upward as an imaginary gallery of spectators. Right, she cried, with an awful mimicry of her old stage voice. Right. And the weak hand was waved again with a forlorn, feeble imitation of the old stage gesture. Closing her fingers mechanically on the pen that was thrust between them, Sarah, with her eyes still expressing the superstitious terror which her mistress's words had aroused, waited for the next command. Some minutes elapsed before Mrs. Traverson spoke again. She still retained her senses, sufficiently to be vaguely conscious of the effect which the medicine was producing on her, and to be desirous of combating its further progress before it succeeded in utterly confusing her ideas. She asked first for the smelling bottle next to some eau de cologne. This last, 
poured onto her handkerchief and applied to her forehead seemed to prove successful in partially clearing her faculties. Her eyes recovered their steady look of intelligence, and when she again addressed her maid, reiterating the word right, she was able to enforce the direction by beginning immediately to dictate in quiet, deliberate, determined tones. Sarah's tears fell fast. Her lips murmured fragments of sentences in which entreaties, expressions of penitence, and exclamations of fear were all strangely mingled together. But she wrote on submissively in wavering lines until she had nearly filled the first two sides of the notepaper. Then Mrs. Traverson paused, looked the writing over, and taking the pen, signed her name at the end of it. With this effort, her powers of resistance to the exciting effect of the medicine seemed to fail her again. The deep flush began to tinge her cheeks once more, and she spoke hurriedly and unsteadily when she handed the pen back to her maid. Sign, she cried, beating her hand feebly on the bedclothes. Sign, Sarah Leeson, witness. No, write, accomplice. Take your share of it. I won't have it shifted on me. Sign, I insist on it. Sign as I tell you. Sarah obeyed, and Mrs. Traverton, taking the paper from her, pointed to it solemnly with a return of the stage gesture which had escaped her a little while back. You will give this to your master, she said. When I am dead, and you will answer as many questions he puts to you as, he tr as truly as if you were before the judgment seat. Clasping her hands fast together, Sarah regarded her mistress for the first time with steady eyes and spoke to her for the first time in steady tones. If I only knew that I was fit to die, she said, oh, how gladly I would change places with you. Promise me that you will give the paper to your master, repeated Mrs. Traverton. Promise? No, I won't trust your promise. I'll have your oath. Get the Bible. The Bible the, clergy, the clergyman used when he was here this morning. Get it, or I shall not rest in my grave. Get it, or I will come to you from the other world. The mistress laughed as she reiterated that threat. The maid shuddered as she obeyed the command which it was designed to impress on her. Yes, yes, the Bible the clergyman used, continued Mrs. Triverton after the book had been produced. The clergyman, a poor, weak man. I frightened him, Sarah. He said, are you at peace with the world? And I said, all but one. You know who. The captain's brother? Oh, don't die at enmity with anybody. Don't die at enmity even with him, pleaded Sarah. The clergyman said that too, murmured Mrs. Traverson, her eyes beginning to wander childishly around the room her tones growing suddenly lower and more confused. You must forgive him, he said. And I said, no, I forgive all the world, but not my husband's brother. The clergyman got up from the bedside, frightened. He talked about praying for me and coming back. Will he come back? Yes, yes, answered Sarah. He is a good man. He will come back and, oh, tell him that you forgive the captain's brother. Those vile words he spoke at you when you were married will come home to him some day. Forgive him, forgive him before you die. Saying those words, she attempted to remove the Bible softly out of her mistress's sight. The action attracted Mrs. Traverton's attention and roused her sinking faculties into observation of present things. Stop, she cried, with a gleam of the old resolution flashing in her once more over dying dimness of her eyes. She caught at Sarah's hand with a great effort, placed it on the Bible and held it there. 
Her other hand wandered a little over the bedclothes until it encountered the written paper addressed to her husband. Her fingers closed on it and a sigh of relief escaped her lips. Ah, she said, I know what I wanted the Bible for. I'm dying with all my senses about me. Sarah, you can't deceive me even yet. She stopped again, smiled a little, whispered to herself rapidly, wait, 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 then added aloud with the old stage voice and the old stage gesture, no, I won't trust you on your promise. I'll have your oath. Kneel down. These are my last words in this world. Disobey them if you dare. Sarah dropped on her knees by the bed. The breeze outside, strengthening just then with the slow advance of the morning, parted the window curtains a little and wafted a breath of its sweet fragrance joyously into the sick room. The heavy beating of the distant surf came in at that time and poured out its unresting music in louder strains. Then the window curtains fell to again heavily. The wavering flame of the candle grew steady once more, and the awful silence in the room sank deeper than ever. Swear, said Mrs. Traverton. Her voice failed her when she had pronounced that one word. She struggled a little, recovered the power of utterance, and went on. Swear that you will not destroy this paper after I am dead. Even while she pronounced these solemn words, even at that last struggle for life and strength, the ineradicable theatrical instinct showed, with a fearful inappropriateness, how firmly it kept its place in her mind. Sarah felt the cold hand that was still laid on hers lifted for a moment, saw it waving gracefully toward her, felt it descend again and clasp her own hand with a trembling, impatient pressure. That final appeal, she answered faintly, I swear it. Swear that you will not take this paper away with you if you leave the house after I am dead. Again, Sarah paused before she answered. Again, the trembling pressure made itself felt on her hand, but more weakly this time. Again, the words dropped affrightedly from her lips. I swear it. Swear, Mrs. Traverson began for the third time. Her voice failed her once more, and she struggled vainly to regain the command over it. Sarah looked up and saw signs of convulsion beginning to disfigure the white face saw the fingers of the white, delicate hand getting crooked as they reached over toward the table on which the medicine bottles were placed. "'You drank it all!' she cried, starting to her feet, as she comprehended the meaning of that gesture. "'Mistress, dear mistress, you drank it all! There is nothing but the opiate left. Let me go, let me go and call!' A look from Mrs. Traverson stopped her before she could utter another word. The lips of the dying woman were moving rapidly. Sarah put her ear close to them. At first she heard nothing but panting, great, quick-drawn breaths, then a few broken words mingled confusedly with them. I haven't done... You must swear. Close, close, come close. A third thing. Your master. Swear to give it. The last words died away very softly. The lips that had been forming them so laboriously parted on a sudden and closed again no more. Sarah sprang to the door, opened it, and called into the passage for help, then ran back to the bedside, caught up the sheet of notepaper on which she had written from her mistress's dictation, and hid it in her bosom. The last look of Mrs. Traverton's eyes fastened sternly and reproachfully on her as she did this, and kept their expression unchanged, through the momentary distortion of the rest of the features, for one breathless moment. That moment passed and with the next, the shadow which goes before the presence of death stole up and shut out the light of life 
in one quiet instant from all the face. <coughs> the doctor, followed by the nurse and by one of the servants, entered the room and hurrying to the bedside saw at a glance that the time for his attendance there had passed away forever. He spoke first to the servant who had followed him. Go to your master, he said, and beg him to wait in his own room until I can come and speak to him. Sarah stood still, without moving or speaking or noticing anyone by the bedside. The nurse, approaching to draw the curtains together, started at the sight of her face and turned to the doctor. I think this person had better leave the room, sir, said the nurse, with some appearance of contempt in her tones and looks. She seems unreasonably shocked and terrified by what has happened. Quite right, said the doctor. It is best you should withdraw. Let me recommend you to leave us for a little while, he added, touching Sarah on the arm. She shrank back suspiciously, raised one of her hands to the place where the letter lay hidden in her bosom, and pressed it there firmly while she held out the other hand for a candle. You had better rest for a little in your own room, said the doctor, giving her the candle. Stop, though, he continued after a moment's reflection. I am going to break the sad news to your master, and I may find that he is anxious to hear any last words that Mrs. Traverton may have spoken in your presence. Perhaps you had better come with me, and wait while I go into Captain Traverton's room. No, no, oh, not now, not now, for God's sake speaking those words in low, quick, pleading tones and drawing back affrightedly to the door, Sarah disappeared without waiting a moment to be spoken to again. The strange woman, said the doctor, addressing the nurse, follow her and see where she goes to, in case she is wanted and we are obliged to send for her. I will wait here until you come back. When the nurse returned, she had nothing to report but that she had followed Sarah Leeson to her own bedroom, had seen her enter it, had listened outside, and had heard her lock the door. Strange woman, repeated the doctor. One of the silent, secret sort. One of the wrong sort, said the nurse. She is always talking to herself, and that is a bad sign, in my opinion. I distrusted her, sir, the very first day I entered the house. That's the end of chapter one. Whew! That was a long chapter. Wow, I'm going to stop at chapter one, because this first episode is stretching to nearly 50 minutes at this rate so we will read chapter two tomorrow so so far it's so we've we've had a death chapter one and a threat of a haunting already so i feel like it's already ticked off potentially the ghost box on this so we've already got some terror sarah is very scared what could the mystery be hmm. so something's happened something involving a child and the mistress, Mrs. Traverson, has written that secret down on the paper, and Sarah knows what it is. So, what could it be? It could be a secret child, maybe. And, and also, like, what has she died of? So she's died of something that afflicts women. Could be almost anything. So she could have given birth recently, and that could be the child they mentioned. Or she could just be dying of, like, consumption, or just dry, dying of drama, it seems. You know, it's just dramatic effect. But I guess we'll find out more tomorrow. I'm going to stop reading and I will continue tomorrow, probably just reading one chapter because I suspect each chapter is going to be quite long. The sentences are very long. Wilkie Collins is a fan of the comma, not just one comma. He likes using four or five commas in his sentences. It's a little out of control. But I'm liking it so far. I'm quite interested to find out what's going to happen. 
and we will continue tomorrow. I wish you all the best and I will see you for chapter two of The Dead Secret.